You can remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 9. We're going to read verses 18 through 27. Luke 9, 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never goes out and returns to you empty, that it always accomplishes uh, your purposes. And we pray that it would be so this morning uh, in us, in our hearts. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 2008, the New Yorker ran a uh, profile of a Frenchman named Frederick Bourdain. Bourdain is a con man. He is what we might call a serial imposter. Uh, He grew up a neglected child in Nantes in northwest France, and he has lied about his identity to the tune of more than 40 aliases in 15 countries in five languages often impersonating, somehow despite his facial hair and his receding hairline, impersonating children or teenagers. Bourdain's most dramatic con came in the late 90s when he posed as a missing Texas boy, fooling the authorities in France, in the U.S., and even the missing boy's family themselves. He's so talented that he lived with his family for months before they figured it out. The police have found no evidence in him of sexual deviance. Uh, He's never stolen any money. One official says that his profit seems to have been purely emotional. Uh, Oddly enough, one of the world's greatest con men has his real identity tattooed on his right forearm. It reads in French, the chameleon from Nantes. That's what he calls himself. If you find that story interesting, uh, there's a reason. Because our identity, that is who we are, who we think we are, and who we appear to be to others is one of the most important things about us. Identity is also very important in the Bible, maybe nowhere more so than in this passage here, where Jesus reveals not only who he is, his true identity, but also in a sense ours as well. And So if you're an outlying kind of person, uh, this is how we're going to look at this in three parts first. Verses 18 through 20, the man. Second, 21 and 22, the mission. And third, verses 23 through 27, the meaning. So the man, the mission, and the meaning. 
The scene opens at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus was probably enjoying the beautiful views of Mount Hermon, uh, which is snow-capped for most of the year. And he had come here to pray privately, as we see in the scriptures he often does before very important events. And he knew uh, that he was about to do something important, that he was going to reveal himself to his disciples, to his most intimate friends and followers in a way that he had not done up until this point. Jesus was about to lay it all out on the table. And so he was going to go to his father for uh, encouragement and comfort in prayer. Verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, uh, that one of the prophets of old has returned. Now it's it's hard for us to understand the confusion here, right? Uh, you and I are very clear on uh, who Jesus is, or at least who he claimed to be. But imagine for a moment that you're one of the crowd who is following him here. Um, and you hear these stories about him preaching, about him performing signs and miracles. And you're trying to think of a category for this person. And if this was your situation, then really the only analog that you would have for this uh, was the prophets, the prophets of old. And so uh, just a few verses earlier in chapter 9, after all, Herod wonders who Jesus is, and he comes up with these same three answers. He says, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe another of the prophets of old. In other words, so far in the history of the world, anyone who had ever come along looking like Jesus did and doing what Jesus did was a prophet. And so we're not surprised that disciples uh, think the same thing. Uh, but here's what they say instead. Verse 20, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Now this is a seminal moment, not just in the Gospels. This is often called the Great Confession. Uh, but... Uh, even in the history of redemption, if we think all the way back to the Garden of Eden, in the darkness of that, that day that sin entered the world and death through sin, and there's a feeling, if, if you read that passage, of how can this possibly be fixed? How can God work a plan that saves rebellious, sinful people like you and me? How can the gospel go forward across a hundred, a thousand generations? Well, it really all comes down to this. It all comes down to this confession that Jesus is Lord. And so Peter answers, um, and he wasn't the first. If we think of the Old Testament believers. And to be clear here, he's actually acting as a spokesman for this whole group, not speaking just for himself. But this is really a new level of clarity. Not just a sort of general trust that the Jews had that a Messiah would come, but a great confession that he has come, that God himself is walking the earth with a name and a body, and that person is Jesus Christ. But now, uh, things take an unexpected turn. And this is our second point, the mission. Uh, when Matthew writes about this moment, Jesus blesses Peter and says that the Father has revealed this to him. And we get a little more of the gravity uh, of the moment but Luke and Mark move very quickly. Verse 21, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. And do you know that feeling in a, in a movie when something completely unexpected happens, right? When uh, someone dies or someone is unmasked and the plot just gets completely reversed. And that is this moment. Uh, Jesus, first of all, accepts the confession. He, he claims his divinity, but then he tells his disciples not to tell anyone. The best explanation for this is that Jesus has just uh, pulled back the curtain for his disciples, uh, for his closest friends, but he's not ready to do that for the whole world yet. And the answer to why, I think, is in the next verse. And this is the real plot twist. Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah that everyone thinks he is, or even that everyone wants him to be. Uh, the Jews have been chafing under this terrible Roman rule. They've been waiting for the day that the Messiah would come and restore their nation to its rightful power. And they thought he would be a warrior king like David, that he would crack some skulls and take some names, and that the Jews would end up back on top. And why wouldn't the Messiah be like David, right? The greatest of the faithful kings, a man after God's own heart. You see, David wanted to be like God, but here in this passage, we see that the problem is the Jews want God to be like David. But that's not who Jesus is. His real identity is found in Isaiah 53, in the prophecy of the suffering servant. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, oppressed and afflicted, led like a lamb to slaughter, that he might be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that he might make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus is the Messiah, but he is a Messiah who is going to come and die for his people. Verse 22, he must suffer and be rejected and be killed. Not that these things may happen, that there are a possibility that they must happen. So Jesus is a warrior king after all, but he fights the powers of death and darkness alone, and he does so in the spiritual realm as an army of one with a casualty, uh, in a war with a casualty of one. And all this is, is forecasted to the disciples. Mark, in his gospel, notes that he says this plainly. No parable, no metaphor. He says, I will suffer and die. And the only note of hope is when he says, on the third day, be raised. Of course, for, for the disciples, the problem is, uh, if you can't understand the death of Christ, and you certainly can't understand his resurrection, unless we think that everything sort of clicks for the disciples after this, Matthew writes that we see Peter so overwhelmed and confused that he actually tries to rebuke Jesus. He says, these things will never happen to you. And Jesus famously responds, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Jesus is a man who knows himself and knows his mission. The question for us this morning is, do we? Uh, do we know who we are? Do we know what we're doing here? This is our third section, the meaning. Frederick Bourdain was cunning and talented enough to choose whatever identity he wanted. Most of us are not that, and yet we do a little bit of the same thing. So here are some different options of how uh, we can define ourselves. So first, let's take the biological angle. Uh, that says that humans evolved over the course of millions of years. The strong survive, the weak do not, and your identity is determined purely by your genetics. The impersonal force of nature 
has defined you and there's nothing you can do about it. Or another common cultural narrative right now is that identity is totally elastic. You can be whoever you want to be, whoever you feel like being. Your identity is entirely self-generated. A third category is based on action. And this might be the one I see uh, most in some of my students. It says that you are what you do, that your identity is formed by your activity, and if you do the right thing, then you are the right thing. Now, those are all oversimplifications. Um, there's some truth in each one, or else they wouldn't ring true to so many people. But Jesus gets at the identity question in a very different way. He says, the real test of your identity is your relationship to me. Verse 23, and he said to all, so he's directing this not just to the disciples, but to all in hearing, to us, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, to come after Jesus, to become his disciple involves denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. We actually touched on this the last time I was here a few weeks ago. Uh, there are three elements here, self, Jesus, and cross. Um, <clears throat> my wife Christina and I worked for a few summers as backpacking guides at a Young Life camp in Colorado. It's actually where we met, and we learned that if you're out on the trail in the wilderness and you've got your maps and your compass, uh, that the only way to really pinpoint exactly where you are is to uh, triangulate yourself. It's to find three objects of prominence, so it could be three mountain peaks, um, and shoot a bearing on your map. That means you literally, uh, you put your compass on your map and you, and you draw a line uh, from these things to where uh, you are, as you can tell by your compass, and at the intersection of the three lines is where you are, exactly. Now, you might not want to be there, <laughs> You might want to be somewhere else, but that is where you are. And in the same way, here, Jesus is saying that you are spiritually at the intersection of these three lines of how you deal with yourself and how you deal with the person and the work of Jesus. That is your true identity. It was John Calvin, uh, in fact, who famously began his institutes with something like this, saying, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And that's what's being reflected here in Jesus' words. But Jesus also says that you should deny yourself. In other words, that you should deny your sinful ways, your rebellious nature towards God. We call that repentance, right? Now, repentance is, is not very popular in our time. Uh, for a lot of people, maybe even for some of you, uh, repentance conjures up sort of fire and brimstone, maybe people on the streets uh, with signs, maybe end times, theology. But repentance is actually Christianity 101. It's something that we do when we first believe. It's something we continue to do in the Christian life as we grow more and more like Jesus. Repentance is more than a general feeling of guilt. It is more than a sort of undercurrent of, of like, Oh, shucks, you know, I'm, I messed up again. Uh, repentance is more than that. It is a, a clear-eyed self-assessment 
in the light of God and in the light of his law. Here is how to not do this. Uh, I'm going to pick on uh, someone named Ricky Gervais. You may have heard of him. He's a, a British comedian and actor. Uh, and so a couple years ago, he did a sort of self-assessment for this article um, on why he's a good Christian. And Ricky Gervais is an atheist, and so uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, and he's a great Christian. But he, he, uh, in the article, he goes through the Ten Commandments as a sort of test. And so he says, Commandment 1, you shall have no other gods before me. And Ricky says, well, I'm an atheist. I don't have any gods. So therefore, I have no gods before the God of Christianity. He says, I get one point. The point system attached to this. Commandment two, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Well, Ricky says, this basically means don't make for yourself a little statue that you worship. And he says, well, I don't, have, I don't do that. I don't have any statues that I worship. So I get another point. And on and on down the list, Ricky goes and he says, I've never murdered anyone. I'm not married, so I've never committed adultery. He says, I'm polite to my parents, and I have definitely never coveted my neighbor's donkey. <laughs> Ricky concludes that he has kept 10 out of 10 commandments, and thus Ricky is a good Christian. Well, Ricky is a poor example of repentance, but he is a great example of um, sort of flattering and pandering to and indulging uh, yourself. Uh, he doesn't understand that the Ten Commandments are really an extension of the character of God, that they are broad and deep and inclusive in reaching into and assessing the innermost parts of our identity and our behavior. And if you doubt this, then you should read what our spiritual fathers, the Westminster Divines, wrote about the Ten Commandments, specifically in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, each commandment in there has a long list of what is required and what is forbidden. We think of the Ten Commandments often in the negative, don't do blank, but uh, they also have a positive aspect of what is required. And so to take the Tenth Commandment, uh, of donkeys and, and neighbors' uh, property as an example to fulfill just this one commandment perfectly, all you have to do is be content at all times, love everyone you come into contact with, and be completely satisfied at every moment with your things and never in want of anyone else's. That's it. No Man, said the divines, understandably, is able either of himself or by any grace received in his life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. How can Ricky Gervais and the Westminster divines be looking at the same thing? Well, Ricky comes to God's word on his terms. The, divine, uh, the divines come to God's words on God's terms, or is Eugene Genovese once said, you worship God in your way and I'll worship him in his. Now this is how you deny yourself. You take a good long look at your sins of thought and word and deed and you see God's wrath and curse due to you for your sin. And then you take a good long look at Jesus who fulfilled God's law perfectly. And you crack open the scriptures and you watch him conquer Satan 
in the wilderness, and you see him heal the broken with a touch, and you look on as he who became sin, he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the children of God. See, he's calling you to follow him. He's saying, take up your cross. In other words, if you deny uh, yourself and follow Jesus, you'll be subject to the same type of pain and shame and persecution as Jesus. Ultimately, it'll be yours alone. It'll be tailored to you in your life, and you'll have to carry it daily, walking doggedly in the ways of Jesus, thinking as he would think, acting as he would act, and loving as he would love. If you follow Jesus, you will stumble and fall in your sin over and over again. But as they say, fall seven times, stand up eight. That's really only true in the Christian life because of grace. Only in the Christian life can you fall seven times and God's grace picks you up eight. In other words, you don't follow Jesus on your own. It's the grace of God working in you, but it is work nonetheless. And thus through repentance and faith and suffering, you enter the sort of paradox. Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Verse 24 for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you refuse to deny yourself, if you go the, the Ricky route, we'll call it, laughing at God and his law, holding tight to the life that you want to build for yourself, then you will gain nothing. But if you give all that up, if you follow Jesus, then you'll gain everything. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is part of the paradox. If you work hard to save your own life, you'll gain nothing in the end. But until then, you might gain lots of things. Worldly comfort, happiness maybe even, sex, fame, fast cars, riches. You can get those things without Jesus, but you can't get those things and have Jesus. And without Jesus, you forfeit yourself. And so it's entirely possible to gain the whole world and lose your soul. How do we know? Because verse 26 tells us, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. In other words, when Jesus returns, if you were ashamed of him in this life, he will be ashamed of you in the next. This is not a silly sort of tit-for-tat with Jesus. Uh, It's that to be ashamed of Jesus and his words, and we should note how closely Jesus is tied Uh, to his message, if you're ashamed of them, then you have disassociated yourself from him. You said you don't know him. And if you don't know him, why would he want to spend, uh, why would he take you to spend eternity with him? Why would you even want to do that if you don't know him? So your real identity, the one that will define you forever, doesn't really have anything to do with what you have achieved in this life with your bank account, your house, your car, your fitness, your skills, your job, has everything to do with where you stand towards Jesus. In other words, it's not what you got, it's who you got. Jesus says clearly here in verse 27, some of those he's speaking to have got him. He says, some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Some people take this to mean that uh, Jesus would come back in their lifetime. That's not what he's saying. He's more likely referring to his mission, to the church, or more likely, uh, uh, to the transfiguration, which happens right after this. But it's a good illustration for us that God's kingdom is coming, but God's kingdom is here. 
It's here through the work of the church. It's here through people becoming Christians and worshiping God here in this life. But it is coming fully and finally at the last day in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, we throw that word around a lot. Now, uh, we say a lot of things are glorious, right? Uh, Maybe you've Instagrammed a a sunset, hashtag glorious, uh, and that's fine. But I am convinced that the last day will be less like a sunset, and it will be more like the transfiguration. Uh, Like we talked about a few weeks ago, less reds and yellows and oranges and more dazzling white light. Revelation 19 gives us a picture. Jesus on the white horse, his army of saints in white linen. And the dazzling white light of the return of the king is going to shine on each one of us like a spotlight. Frederick Bourdain had a tattoo of his real identity, if you remember. The chameleon of Nantes tattooed right there on his forearm. When Jesus returns, Scripture says... On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you've believed that, if you've denied yourself in repentance and faith and taken up your cross, then you will ride with him. But either way, in the light of that that white light, the day that Jesus returns, you will show your true identity in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, We thank you that you came to earth for us, that you died on the cross for us, and that uh, we uh, now see ourselves solely in the light of you. Um, We pray that you would show us that, that you would show us who we really are, our true identity uh, in Christ, if we're outside of you, uh, that you would be clear with us on who we are, Pray that we would look to you in repentance and faith, trusting you in our lives. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.